This morning, we're brought to one of the most well-known Bible verses in all of the Bible, John 3, 16. This is kind of where our verse-by-verse study has taken us. One, one commentator said that John three sixteen is a text that contains an ocean of thought and a drop of language. I like, I like those, those guys that can really spin a phrase. It's just a great description. You know, Martin Luther, the great reformer, said that John three sixteen was a miniature gospel and he called it a text in which the Bible, the entire Bible was contained. So you can, you can see there's a lot of buildup to this. And so um, as I jokingly state, you know, when we come to a very well-known Bible passage, I simply view myself as the waiter. I need to get the food from the kitchen to your table without spilling it. And that's kind of my goal this morning on John 3.16. We want to just rejoice in this truth. And what I find ironic over the years uh, as I speak with people, maybe you do as well, is how many people know John 3.16. How many people can quote John 3.16, but then on the flip side, how, many, how very few people actually understand John 3.16. It's a simple message that often gets confused. It's a simple message that has lots of things coming at it to distract. Um, very e- even less people understand that John 3.16 is in the context of Jesus's conversation with Nicodemus about how to be born again. That's even less people understand that because we typically don't study the Bible in context. We like to just rip verses because we, well, miss what happened, right? We all got a calendar with a Bible verse on it for Christmas, right? We flip it off. There's one Bible verse. We're like, man, I love that verse. No concept of the context, right? And so we want to look at everything uh, by God's grace through the context this morning. And one of the things that we saw last week is Jesus used an Old Testament story to illustrate the new birth. And and this is very important to see, even as we build on John 3, 15, 16, and 17, which is what we're going to cover this morning. And that is found in verse 14. Very simple reference. We covered it in detail last week, but let's read verse 14 as we kind of get a running start to this morning. He says, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the son of man be lifted up. And we remember that story. We looked at it. We won't go into a lot of detail this morning. Israel was complaining, go figure. They kind of were known for that. They were complaining against God, complaining against Moses. God sends a judgment. It's venomous snakes among them. These snakes start to bite some of the Israelites. They begin to die. They realize it's divine judgment. They go to Moses, say, Moses, help us, pray for us. Get, get a solution in place. What does God say? God says, I'll tell you what, Moses, make a bronze servant, put it on a pole, stick it in the air. And the logical people in the room, the scientific people in the room say, what? How would that solve a snake bite? <laughs> this is when God should have, ex- should have revealed eucalyptus leaves essential oils, right? I mean, something in the wilderness out there that could have taken care of the snake bites. Now he puts a bronze serpent on a pole and God tells Moses, you tell the people, if they look at that, they're going to live. If they look at that, they'll be healed. Jesus says in verse 14, even so must the son of man be lifted up. Just like the bronze serpent in the wilderness, now he's going to be lifted up. We looked at that last week referring to what? What was he talking about? What, how must the Son of Man be lifted up? Jesus just going to climb on top of the clock tower in downtown Jerusalem? No, he was going to be put up on a cross. He, he's referring to his death on the cross here. Even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. But why? That's what we're going to actually get into in John 3, 15, and 16. In fact, the flow of these two verses is in verse 15. It's going to give us the reason why the Son of Man must be lifted up. And why people must look at him and him alone by faith. That's what verse 15 is going to give us. And then verse 16 is going to further explain how and why God did it this way. So we're going to, you know, this is what I love about the Bible. Oftentimes God will let you in behind the scenes in the back room to see how and why he did what he did. He's not like the dad that just says, get your shoes on. The kids say, why? And he says, because I said so. And I know we've all, dads, come on, we pull that one all the time because we just don't have time to explain sometimes. We're just like, get your shoes on because I said so. God oftentimes says, get your shoes on and let me explain why you're getting your shoes on. And that's going to be this case in John 3, 15 and 16. And so we're going to take these verses together because there's some repeated phrases as we'll see. Um, He says, that whoever believes, this is in verse 15, in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God so loved the world 
that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And so we see this word that, very key word in Bible study. It's, it's what, in the Greek, it's a hina clause. It provides us with a, a purpose clause. It's a purpose statement. This, this is what he did, and here's why, it, it, when it follows that. And so he's explaining again, why does the Son of Man have to be lifted up? And then why do you have to look to him, Nicodemus? Just like the Israelites of old looked to the bronze serpent, why do you have to look to him? He's explaining that for us. And what we're going to see is there's two promises that come out of the Son of Man be lifting up and us looking to him by faith. There's two promises that God makes, and it's right there at the end of verse 16. You should not perish, but you have everlasting life. And we're going to get into that in more detail. Now, the question becomes, who's this for? Nicodemus, if Jesus would have said, now, now Nicodemus, for every Jew who believes, just like the Old Testament, if every Jew looks to the son of man who's been lifted up, Nicodemus probably been like, okay, <laughs> I'm okay with that. Okay. This is starting to make sense to me. But in going forward where I think Nicodemus just left this conversation, probably scratching his head. Um, probably picked it up later. We looked at that last week in John 19. It appears that Nicodemus eventually believed this message that Jesus said. But Jesus says, whoever. And, and notice in the verses up there that he repeats whoever twice. He repeats whoever twice. This is a Greek word, pas, and it means all. It means each one without limit. It, it literally, when you think of the word whosoever, that's what it means. If, if I tell you about the chili cook-off later and I say, whosoever wants to come to the chili cook-off can come. And then I'm waiting back there at the back door saying, except for you, except for you, you can come, you can come. I just lied to you. It's not a whosoever at that point, right? And so although this word may seem redundant to some, it's, it's a clear and direct way for Jesus to repeat and emphasize and make sure Nicodemus didn't think he was stuttering on this point to say anyone and everyone who wants it can have eternal life. They can be born again. It's, it literally is a legitimate offer to all, not just Jews, not just a certain select few that were selected beforehand, but everyone. Because if it's available to anyone, it cannot be limited to certain people. And that's just following the logic of, of language in the words that Jesus used. And you know what? It fits with the context. Because the one response to gain the benefit of what Christ has done is the word believe. We're going to look at that in a lot more detail later. But right now, I want to just say that verb is in the active voice. That means you and I individually must choose to believe. We must be persuaded and convinced that what Christ did for us was enough, so much so that we rely upon him for our eternal destiny. And see, the Israelite conceptually in the wilderness that thought Moses' idea of lifting the serpent on the pole was stupid. And I'm not going to lower myself to that standard by looking at this dumb, created, bronze serpent on the pole. That person would die. They would not be healed. And they had that choice. They could have, again, said to their buddy, no, nah, just forget Moses' pole. Just suck a little bit harder. Just try to, try to get that venom out of the wound a little bit harder, right? But, he, but this is the point. They had the choice because it was available to all. It was available to all. And this is, again, why it's in keeping with the Old Testament example that Jesus cited. The all or the whoever here in John 3, 15 and 16 corresponds with the everyone in Numbers 28 and the anyone in Numbers 21, 9. In fact, let's look at that. Then the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on the pole, and it shall be that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and put it on a pole. And so it was, if a serpent had bitten anyone, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. And so we see this connection to what Jesus is trying to make in terms of the offer of this new birth from above. It's for anyone. It's for everyone who will respond in this designated way that he's about to give. So Moses, again, he didn't just go to his favorite people. You know, I'm... Sh <laughs> If Moses was a human being, and he was, are you telling me he probably didn't have some favorite people? The, probably the people that didn't complain as much, he probably liked them a little bit better. We all this natural tendency, you know, it's like, you know, your, your favorite people are the ones who like you the most, right? It just seems to be that way. 
And so Moses didn't go to his favorite people. In fact, who, who did he lift the pole up? It was for the ones who were complaining, getting bit by snakes. But it was offered to all without limit. And guess what? All who looked at the bronze serpent, they lived, period. That was the way God set it up. He set it up exactly that way. And so we look at the connection. They were to look at the bronze serpent. What does Jesus say that people in Nicodemus's day must do? They must believe. And we see this repeated twice in verse 15 and also verse 16. Whoever believes in him, it's the Greek word pastuo. It's the Greek word that John uses a hundred times in this gospel to reflect the required response to being saved. This is, this is the word. And it meant to be firmly persuaded as to something and thus relying upon it as a result. It describes the act of believing and resting or relying upon something because of the basis of its truthfulness and its reliability. You put a three-legged chair in front of me, I'm probably not going to rest my whole weight on it initially. But you put a four-legged chair on it, I'm, I'm convinced the screws are in okay, I'll put my whole body weight on that thing. I'll rest on it completely. And this is what we're talking about, believing in Jesus Christ. You're relying upon him and something he did to take care of a problem you have. And that's exactly the way this is set up, even looking at the story numbers. The Israelites had a problem. God provided a solution. Now they must individually respond to his solution in the way that he dictated, which was just to look at his solution. The same way is true. Mankind has a problem. We have a death penalty that we cannot pay. We have an issue with righteousness. We're not good enough to get into heaven. God provided a solution in his dearly beloved son. He died for you so that you wouldn't have to face the death penalty. His righteousness can be credited to your account, but you've got to respond. You've got to choose to respond. And the Bible tells us that that response is faith. You're relying on Jesus and what he did. Just like the Israelite trusted in God's solution for salvation from the snake venom, you and I are designed to trust in God's solution, Jesus Christ, who died for your sins and rose again as a solution to our sin problem and also our righteousness issue. It all comes together in this word. Now, based on the Old Testament example, like I said, He's likening, Jesus is likening belief in him with looking at the bronze serpent. And then this verse will go on to say that whoever does this, whoever relies on Jesus and his work for them is promised two things. They will never perish and they will have eternal life. Now, people look very closely in this passage for contingencies. In other words, yeah, I see you've got to believe in Jesus Christ, but you, we know that you got to do more. It's kind of maybe the argumentation that someone would put forward. But you're going to find here in this passage, there's no contingencies. There's no fine print that you need. You know, I look at some of these uh, advertisements for medicine, uh, you know, on TV, and it's like, boy, they're, they're going to do everything except for the fine print. May cause a heart attack, may cause you to hate people, may cause you, I mean, it's just like, what? Why would I ever take that for, I'd just rather have a headache, you know what I mean? Like, I don't, I don't want to, like, ruin my marriage over this headache thing, you know? And it's, it's just insane, this, the fine print. And so people come to John 3, 16, and they look at the fine print. They, they look for fine print. They look for additional contingencies. Yeah, but it can't be that. It, it can't be just that, right? And this is how many people approach it. And so although this verse is very simple, many people have a problem with the simplicity found here. And so I want to just address that this morning. This may be way deeper than you've ever wanted to get in John 3.16. And if that's the case for you, I I apologize in advance. But I think it might be helpful to some of us to, to actually bolster our faith in the accomplishment of what Jesus Christ did. And that's the reason I want to slow down and kind of look at some some of these things in more detail, because there are some out there that will appeal to John three fifteen and 16. And I, and I want you to be aware of this, so this doesn't catch you by surprise, but they'll appeal because the word believe is a present tense participle. It's all Greek to you, right? I mean, it's, it's thing, but the, the way people will say that, well, it's a present tense participle. And because it's present tense, it proves that our faith must be ongoing and continual. They'll, they'll try to draw, derive that from the Greek. They'll say it's present tense participle. It's got to be ongoing and continual. And so thus, what they'll say or the, the way they'll come out of that is they'll say that implies or, or they'll implicitly state that if you ever stop believing or if you ever deny Christ, then you cannot be saved. 
regardless of the contradiction of the promises God makes. But they're saying that's the contingency. That's the fine print here. It's not, it's not as easy as just believing one time and then having these promises. There's a contingency there that you got to keep believing. You got to go on and persevere in the, in the faith. And they would say that this is the fine print. I disagree with that statement completely. And I think it's actually a very inaccurate way to handle this passage. I think it's a very inaccurate way to understand the present tense participle in this passage. And so I want to just look at really two lines of argumentation for the reason why I believe this reflects a one-time moment of faith, that, that when Jesus spoke this, this is what he spoke, this is what he indicated, and that this is the way that Nicodemus would have understood it. And I want to make that argument from two lines of argumentation. One here is, is going to be context, and then the other is going to be grammar. And those of you that hated English grammar, I'm so sorry. We're just going to, I promise, we'll dive in. I'll try to make, we'll make sense of it. We'll get out of it quickly. Um, but I think it's going to be helpful to support and understand that this is a one-time moment of faith. I really want to just use this opportunity to encourage you that when God made promises, there's no contingencies. He meant it. The moment you trust in Christ because he's finished the work, it's completed on your behalf as well. And so first line of argumentation, some quick questions regarding the context. Was continual belief what Jesus was trying to communicate by using the story of the bronze serpent? I think that's a fair question. If he's trying to communicate that you and I must continually believe, is that why he went to the bronze serpent story? Is that, is that a good illustration of continual belief? And, and the reason I ask that is because some people will say yes. And, and what I want to say is, well, where is the story in Numbers where the people that got bit had to go back and keep looking at the bronze serpent to stay healed. And you won't find it there because it wasn't an indication of continual belief. It was an indication that they trusted in God's solution. And the moment they did, they received the benefit of God's solution in that moment. They didn't have to keep an eye on life and keep an eye on the bronze serpent to stay healed, in other words. And so that was a quick question regarding context. Um, did the dying Israelites have to continue to look at the serpent for the rest of their lives to stay saved from the snake bites? Number three, were they required to keep on looking at the bronze serpent for the rest of their lives in order to get healed, then to stay healed, or to prove that they were initially healed? Now, that just sounds like a really foolish thing to say when we're talking about the bronze serpent. But do you know that those last two questions are what many contemporary theologians try to teach from this very passage? That, that, in order to, that if you continually believe, then it proves that you believe to begin with or that you were saved to begin with. And if you ever stop believing, it proves that you never believed genuinely to begin with. This is what some contemporary theologians teach. And oftentimes, in addition to this context, they will appeal to the Greek grammar, like I said, and they'll say this is a present tense participle. Thus, everything in the Greek that's present tense means ongoing and continual belief or ongoing and continual action. And I'm just here to tell you that's not true. And I'm going to, I want to show you some examples here. Um, by the way, lest I be accused of saying something I'm not, is continuing to believe in Jesus a good thing? Yes. <laughs> it's a it's a great thing. I'm not discouraging that. What I'm trying to say is this. When one is born again, does it require continual belief? Is that what John 3, 15 and 16 is teaching? And I would say no. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about two different things when we talk about going on with Jesus in faith or believing in a moment. We're talking about the difference between birth and behavior. Those are not the same thing. Birth is a moment in time event. Behavior is what traces you the rest of your life. It's a process of time event. Birth spiritually delivers you from the penalty of sin. Sanctification or process of time living delivers you from the power of sin. That's what we're trusting the Lord to do in our Christian life. And so we're not saying that ongoing faith is, is a bad thing. We're just making the point that John three fifteen and 16 doesn't teach ongoing faith. It's talking about how you get born. And it's a one-time moment of faith. So we've looked at that first argument, but now we want to look at the Greek grammar. And um, <clears throat> here's, here's what's often said about Greek grammar. The mastery of the Greek participle. Greek is a very participle-laden language. Lots of participle usage to communicate in the Greek. 
But it's often been said that if you can master the Greek participle, you'll master the Greek language. It's, it, there's some difficulty with the participle in terms of understanding what the writer was communicating, especially when you're removed from the writing for 2,000 years. Let me give you an example of this. That is what's known as a participle flow chart. Any, any engineers? Any, any, I mean, the flow charts, right? Yeah, Harrison, yeah. Flow charts are a little confusing when you don't know what's going on. This is just one example of a participle flow chart. If you are a Greek student in seminary, you're going to get access to like, I don't know how many they have. There's just a ton of them. But I want to just point out something. You can't really see this very well. But right up here is where you start. It's kind of like, okay, we're going to date ourselves. Who remembers the Choose Your Own Adventure books? Remember those? Right? Okay, if you want to do this, jump to page 32. And if you want to do this, go back to page 17. It, it, well, the Greek part of something, it's not like a choose your own adventure book, but in some ways it is because you've got to answer questions and then you've got to move to different areas to figure out where you're going. And I just want to give you an understanding, just a quick one. But the first question you start with does the participle have an article? In other words, the word the in front of it. If yes, you go to this side of the box. If no, you go over here. And if you go no, you got other questions to ask. Is it used with a me, which is the verb to be? If yes, then you're, you know you've got a paraphrastic. Don't, we won't talk about that. But, but, but if it's not with a me, then you have to go down here. Is it used in the genitive case? No. Then you have all of these potential uses of that participle. And I show you that not to say, hey, let's, let's spend the rest of the lesson looking at participles in the Greek. I don't want to do that. I just want you to see that there's, there's a process you have to work through with participle. You can't just go present tense, ongoing, and continual. You just can't do that. It's, it's more complex. There's some nuances, I guess is what I'm trying to say uh, largely. And so when we get to John 3, 16, the participle believe it is present tense, but it's, it's an articular participle. It means it's got the definite article, the. And why is that important? Because it functions more like a noun than a verb. That's what it does when it shoots. I don't have the flow chart up. Um, and some of y'all are saying, praise the Lord. But I, the flow chart, when you get the word the, it shoots it to the, to the substantival noun side or adjectival modifying a noun side of the participle usage. It gets out of the verbial adverbial side. So again, why is this important? Well, the addition of it nominalizes it, turns it into a noun and function. Why is that important? Because the phrase, he who believes, that's a good translation of that participle, simply means the believer or he who believes or the believing one. That's the thrust of that participle. It makes, it basically turns it into a noun with less emphasis on the verbal component of it. Now, there's still a verbal component. I mean, you have to believe, but this is what it does. It nominalizes it. Here's what's key about it, though. This is what's, this is, why are we going through all of this? This is why, right here, this, this last statement. It, it can be translated this way, but notice that last phrase, without denoting anything specific about the nature of believing, its duration, or even the time when it occurred. What that tells us that is this, a substantival participle, you can look at it, but it doesn't tell you if it's ongoing or continuous or one-time moment. It doesn't tell you that in the grammar itself. It doesn't tell you if it happened in the past. It doesn't, happen if, it doesn't tell you it happened in the present, and it doesn't happen if it tells you in the future. You cannot get that from the grammar itself. This is the whole reason I'm going through this. And the reason I'm going through this is this. The, the legitimate way to handle participles in the Greek is to say, this is a present tense participle, and along with the context, this is what it means. You see, participles by themselves don't tell you anything. Participle with the context can give you clarity. Okay, that's the gist of where we're going. Let me show you some examples of other present tense, substantival participles used in the New Testament. So you can see that context is really the king here. Context is what dictates if it's continual, ongoing, or if it's point in time. All right. And so the very first, um, the very first example we want to go to, and go ahead and just hold your finger in John 3. We'll come back, obviously. But let's go to Mark chapter 14, verses 18 through 20. This is Jesus at the Last Supper. And in verse 20, we're going to read this phrase, he who, he who dips, okay? Or I think it's just who dips, but 
the point is this, that is a present tense participle, just like the one we have in John three sixteen for belief, okay? So let's read through the passage and let's make some comments. Mark chapter four, verses 18 through 20. I'm sorry, Mark chapter 14. The, the screen is right. The speaker is wrong. Mark 14, 18. Now, as they sat and ate, Jesus said, assuredly, I say to you, one of you who eats with me will betray me. And they began to be sorrowful and to say to him one by one, is it I? And another said, is it I? He answered and said to them, it is one of the 12 who dips with me in the dish. So would we ever come to that passage and say that the one who dips continually with Jesus in the dish? In fact, would you expect if you went to Jerusalem today that Jesus and Judas would still be dipping together, continually, ongoing, and perseveringly? And and so, very silly example, but to show you that the Greek grammar itself doesn't indicate continual dipping. In fact, the context establishes what? That the dipping was a one-time moment event. You can read further in John 13, 26, and it's a one-time dipping gesture. And so, again, how do we know that? Well, not on the grammar alone, but the context. Context and grammar give us the understanding of what he's trying to communicate there. Another example is found in Luke chapter 1. Let's just flip the page in your Bibles. Luke chapter 1, verses 34 through 35. And what we're going to see is this phrase, um, as the angel is speaking to Mary, he uses this phrase, who is to be born That's a present tense substantival participle, just like whoever believes in John 3, 16. Same exact construction. Let's read it. Verse 34, then Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I do not know a man? And the angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore, also that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. Now, for Mary's sake, I'm sure that she's forever grateful that this is not continual, ongoing, and persevering birth. That would be terrible for her and very painful for her. Birth by its very nature is a one-time momentary event, but yet we have a present tense participle used here, and that's just the point. Grammar doesn't alone doesn't indicate the duration or the timing. Grammar plus context gives us clarity, okay? And this is the point we're trying to make. And so context, again, always has got to assist us in interpreting the grammar correctly. One more quick example, Luke 16, 18. So go ahead and flip to Luke 16, 18. Again, present tense participle, substantival participle, just like whoever believes. But in Luke 16, 18, he uses it for the phrase, whoever divorces his wife. Verse 18, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced from her husband commits adultery adultery. Again, what we see is the very nature of divorce, divorce is momentary, okay? Once, once the legal judicial decision, once the paperwork signed, it's done. It's a moment in time, if you want to call it a transactional event. Now, the results of divorce may last ongoingly, but the act of divorce is, is committed once the paperwork's finalized, okay? But it's just, just showing you, again, some usage of this. And so the grammar couldn't tell us this on any of these passages. The context helped us understand what the grammar was trying to say. Now, let's go back to John chapter 3, because what's the main point? The main point is this. Whoever believes in John 3, 15 and 16 does not inherently, in the grammatical structure itself, indicate ongoing or continual belief. Now, to be fair, it doesn't indicate in the grammar itself that it's a one-time moment belief. So what do we need to do? What do we do with the other passages? We have to tie in the context. We have to understand how the the speaker, in this case, is using that phrase and how his audience would have understood it. And also, it describes anyone. When we we look at that that phrase grammatically in and of itself, it describes anyone who's believed in a point in the past, at a point in in the present, or some point in the future. So that doesn't even provide us clarity. So the question becomes, how do we know for sure? And this is the whole, let's round about why we just did all that. The whole reason is the context gives us the assurance of what he's trying to say. And this is what we want to focus on here. Because the object lesson that Jesus uses, 
in verse 14 illustrates belief was a one-time moment of faith, not an ongoing or continual faith. And that's very uh, important. And it's this one-time moment in belief or reliance upon him, it's the only prerequisite to be the beneficiary of the two promises that God's gonna make. Now, why Jesus? Because he's the one who's lifted up. That's what's building out of verse 14. Even so must the son of man be lifted up. That purpose clause, whoever believes in him, why him? Because he's the one who dies for you and rises again. That's, that's why him. He's making that purpose clause. And so he is God's solution to every problem that you've ever had, including the big problem, which was sin and righteousness. He's the solution. And this is why he wants us to trust in him. And so now let's look at the promises that we find in in John 3, 15 and 16. Both of them uh, are repeated. And so that first promise is that you should not perish. Uh, Now the word perish by itself means to destroy, but there's a Greek preposition slapped on front of this word. It's the Greek preposition apo. It's it gives it a, a new force. It means to destroy wholly or entirely. Um, I like what Dr. Constable says here about this word. He says, to perish does not mean to experience annihilation, but ruin, a failure to, a failure to realize God's purpose and exclusion from his fellowship. The only alternatives are life or perishing. There is no other final state. And, and you know, we, we would describe perishing as the judicial condemnation that each one of us deserves because we've broken God's law. And hence, it gives us the reason why the new birth or the spiritual birth from above is needed, not just optional, but but needed. Because if that doesn't change, then we are responsible to pay this judicial penalty. This is what the Bible describes uh, in Romans 6.23, where it says the wages of sin is death. That's the perishing that we're talking about here. And so the good news is that when you believe in Jesus Christ, God's solution for sin's problem, you don't have to perish. You don't have to face that death penalty because your substitute faced it for you. And so again, they're gonna avoid sure judgment, the one who believes on Jesus. And again, very similar to the Old Testament example. We just keep going back contextually to say, this is what he's building off of here to make this point clear. The astute observer (laughs) maybe you've noticed this before. And if you haven't, I hate to bring up a can of worms, but sometimes it's good to kind of bring it up in a safe area uh, than than be confronted with it. But the astute observer is going to notice the English word should. You guys notice that? It's John uh, 3.15 and 16, whoever believes in him should not perish. And then John 3.16, whoever believes in him should not perish. And it may raise a question in your mind, is this really a guaranteed promise or is this a possibility that could be in doubt. And I think it's a good question to ask, you know, as we're studying the Bible. And to answer this question, unfortunately, we're going to have to go to Greek school again. And um, I say that just to say that um, this is a good translation of this word. Now, what you're going to find is that I think um, in the NASB, the NIV, maybe even the net Bible. I'm trying to remember. I've got these in a certain order on my computer. I think those are the last three. They'll have something to the effect will not perish. It, it's, it's almost got a promise guaranteed thrust. That's probably a great understanding of it, but, but should not perish is actually a good interpretation of the Greek here. Now, let's talk about that because should not perish translates the Greek, what's called a, the subjunctive mood. Now, the subjunctive mood is a mood that normally presents the verbal action as being probable or intentional, okay? Probable or intentional. Uh, the mood does not typically guarantee something like the indicative mood does. Typically, when you see in the Greek language, the indicative mood, you're like, oh, that's a promise. That's a mood of reality. That's going to happen, especially future indicative. God will make a promise, future indicative. You're like, oh, I can take that to the bank. He's made a promise. That's reality, he doesn't do that here. In fact, he, he uses the subjunctive mood to communicate probability or his intention, if you will. And that's just on a, on a grammar level. So the, the question becomes, is this a promise or not, right? That's really what we want to get down to. Is this a promise that we can count on or not? In fact, the way it reads in English is, again, depending on the translation, in order that we may, might, <laughs> should not perish, it, it kind of gives this implication that there's some contingency present. Like, 
I don't know how I can lose this, but it looks like I can. You know, that's kind of, if we're being honest, that's kind of what the English seems to communicate. But here's what's so interesting about this. And, and it's one of those um, things we could get into a lot more detail. But when Jesus is using the frame of argument that he's using, the subjunctive mood here is all but cr- required grammatically. In other words, had he used the indicative mood, it would have it been like he wasn't speaking no good English. You know, he, he was using the word ain't, you know what I mean? It, it, was, it was grammatically required because of this connection to this hina clause, this purpose clause, that, that whoever does this contingency, it's got to follow up with subjunctive mood. And, and one of the things that's so interesting is, and again, we're removed from this 2,000 years, right? This was written 2,000 years ago. But in terms of understanding the speaker's intent, the question always becomes in Bible interpretation, what did the original speaker, original author intend for his original audience to understand? That's Bible interpretation. There's only one of those, by the way, in every passage and every verse in the Bible. And so the question becomes, what did Jesus mean? By using this, well, because it was grammatically required, a native Greek speaker would have taken it as a promise. Nicodemus would have taken that as a promise. And that's why the NASB and the Net Bible and the NIV, they actually pick up on this thrust and they make it a promise because the grammar and the structure of grammar supports that. So it looks like there's some kind of contingency in mind for the English mind, but for the Greek mind, this is a promise. This is something you can take to the bank. And this is how it had to be structured. Daniel Wallace is a noted Greek scholar. And he says this about this passage and the use of the subjunctive here. He says, this category of usage indicates both the intention and its sure accomplishment. And what God purposes is what happens. And consequently, hina, that's that, 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 translated that, is used to, to express both the divine purpose and the result. And so I want you to be comfortable (laughs) with John 3.16. Should not perish because of the grammar that supports it means you will not perish. It's a promise. That's the whole point of going through that and just kind of recognizing that. And so that's the first promise. You will not perish. Now, why will you never face the death penalty? Well, just take it to a normal court of law. If you've got a fine that you owe the judge and somebody else pays your fine, guess how much you owe going forward? Nothing. If I were to take you out to lunch today, and by the way, I'm going to take everyone in this room, whoever wants to go out to lunch, I'm taking you for free. You don't have to pay anything, right? But I'm going to send you an invoice later this week. And that is totally joking, right? Because if it's free, it's been paid for, that implies what? You don't have to pay anything. This is the good news about Jesus's death on the cross for you. This is why you you will never perish, Because Jesus' death counts in your place. He paid it in full. The death penalty can never be brought back up on your lap to ever face again. This is how succinct and final Jesus' payment was for you. And so the second promise that we see there in John 3, 15 and 16 is that you will have eternal life. So in contrast to perishing, the person who believe will have eternal life. And it implies continual possession, this, this word have. By the way, it too is used in the subjunctive mood. And it's because it's required by the Hena clause. So even this phrase, it just doesn't reflect it as much in the English as it did initially with parish. But the point is, this is a guarantee. This is what's guaranteed. You have it right now. Presently, you possess life the moment you believe in him. And if in this moment you have, you presently hold, you possess life that lasts forever, can you ever lose it? By definition, you can't. Otherwise, God is a liar. He's worse than a life insurance salesman. That's what life insurance salesmen do. I'm gonna sell you temporary life and later you can convert it to whole life. Or I'm gonna sell you whole life and, you know, but you gotta re-up in 20. I'm gonna sell you whole life, but you, I got you on a 20-year plan. And I'm gonna have to re-up in 20 years, right? And what happens when you re-up on life insurance? They jack the rates. (laughs) They require more. This is God saying, because Jesus finished the work, I can make this incredible promise to you and I'll never retract it. You have eternal life. It lasts forever. Now, we, we talked about this in communion earlier, but at the start of verse 16, you see a very key 
Bible study word that you just always want to notice as you're studying the Bible. It's the word for, F-O-R. And the reason I say that is because now Jesus is going to further expand and explain why and how God set it up this way. And the first thing we want to look at is why. Why did God set it up this way? And if I could just put it succinctly, God loves the daylights out of you. That's why he did it. That's why. That's why he set it up this way. See, and this is in contrast to religion. Religion wants to tell you what you must do for God. The Bible wants to tell you what God has done for you. The religion wants to tell you how in order to get to heaven, you got to love God. You've got, that's how you get there. You got to just keep, you got to love God. You got to love God. The Bible wants to tell you how much God has loved you. You see the difference? Religion is always working from me up. The Bible is working from God down because last time I checked, we're not very good at solutions. We're incredibly gifted at causing problems. God is incredibly gifted at providing lasting solutions. And so the reason he did this is because of his great love. I love how the Net Bible translates this phrase, for this is the way God loved the world. This is how much God loved the world. In fact, it was the, the way Jesus constructs the statement, it emphasizes not only the extent or the degree of how much he loved the world, but the manner in which he loved the world by sending his only begotten son to pay that penalty for you. And so you've heard the phrase, how much did God love you? You've seen that, that old phrase, this much? He, he spread out his, that's, <laughs> I think that's a great illustration of what is being said here in John three sixteen. And see, it was God's love that motivated him to provide an answer, a solution to the predicament that we found ourselves in. And the reasons God's love is so amazing is not because the world is so big, but rather because the world's so bad. That's why it's amazing. Why would you love a bunch of rejects? Why would you, why would you love a bunch of rejects that constantly reject you, criticize you, yell at you, Expect things from you that you didn't even say you would do. Why would you love that lot? I don't have an answer, but I got a verse. He does. That's, that's the answer. He, I don't know why, but he does. It's, and, and we could say we know why because it's in his character. That's who he is. He is love, the Bible teaches us. So that's the Why? Why did God act? But now the, the how. How did God act in order to provide a solution? Well, we see that he gave his only begotten son. Gave means he gave of his own accord. He gave with goodwill. And what he did is he gave his dearly beloved son as a substitute to pay the penalty that you and I deserve. Again, the penalty that somebody could avoid if they'll simply look and trust in God's solution. That's the whole message here of John three sixteen. And so he put his love into action. Don't you uh, just dislike people that tell you they love you and then they never do anything to show you that they love you? I mean, we have a name for that now in our culture. It's called a Facebook friend, right? <laughs> Happy birthday. I haven't heard from you in 365 and a half days, right? <laughs> now you're my best friend. I love you. But you know what? God's not a Facebook friend. He loves he demonstrates his love. He's demonstrated his love. He continues to demonstrate his love. He's a real friend. He's a, he's a real father in that sense. And that's why Romans 5.8 says that God demonstrates his own love toward us. And that while we were still sinners, not if we promise to clean ourselves up, if we promise to turn from all of our sins, if we promise to start going to church, no, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us because the solution we needed was not better behavior. The solution we needed was someone to pay the penalty, the wages of our sin. And so God did exactly that. And you know, one of the things we learned earlier that is that God's knowledge, his planning for this event was revealed all the way back to Genesis 3.15. Josh was even referencing this in the music earlier. All the way back in Genesis 3.15, repeated often in the Old Testament. This is why Jesus in verse 11, if you recall back in John 3 in verse 11, he says, we speak what we know and we have seen. See, the triune God knew what was needed to provide salvation for mankind. Nothing caught the triune God off guard. They knew this all the way from 
the beginning. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit knew this. And this is why even in some of our favorite Christmas verses, we often miss the significance of what's going on behind the scenes. Unto us a child is born. Merry Christmas. Unto us a son is given. Salvation's provided because he's given his dearly beloved son. And so we see that here in John 3.16. I love the way he's described. This is the heartbeat behind everything that we want to do in this church is to further glorify Jesus Christ and to lift him up in each one of our thinking so that when you look at Jesus, you see who and what he truly is. He is unique. He is one of a kind. He is one of only one class. When God, uh, when Jesus Christ came to this earth, God broke the mold for humanity. There's no one ever been like him. There's no one who will ever be like him. He is the only one worthy of our praise. And God will one day give him a name that's highly exalted above every other name. We know that from the scriptures. So why don't we start enjoying that right now? (laughs) Why don't we start getting excited about the one who died for us and rose again right now? As 2 Corinthians 5 says, why don't we live our lives in light of the fact of the one who died for us and rose again? May that be the heartbeat of our lives, the heartbeat of the way we think. You know, Christ did become flesh at a point in time, but he was always a unique son of God. He was always the special son of God. In fact, when I think about bringing glory to Jesus Christ, we've talked about this before, but the word glory means we are declaring his reputation. And he's got an awesome reputation. And he's got a big reputation. And guess what? He is going to far exceed anything you think of him in a good way. He's going to far exceed that when you finally get to meet him face to face. You're going to be blown away. I rejoice to think of our loved ones who have gone on to be with the Lord, even within this church body, and to see and to think about what they are seeing right now, to think about how much they are enjoying Jesus Christ unencumbered by the stuff that we get encumbered with. Man, it's awesome, isn't it? I mean, it's just, it's just awesome to think about when you think about it. The fact about Jesus Christ, by the way, and his uniqueness makes the giving of him even more special and incredible. I mean, just to think of this unique son of God, there's, you know, there's not a lot of Jesus Christ running around. Let me just grab that one. He's a little bit shorter than this one. No, he's the only one. He, he literally was God's greatest treasure in heaven. And God sent him to do the work because he knew that he would do it well. He would do it perfectly. He would accomplish what he set forth for him to accomplish. It's just incredible. Now, as we go into verse 17, and we'll move fairly quickly through this, but you're going to notice, again, that great Bible study word leading off verse 17, the word for. And why is that there? Well, Jesus continues to build his argumentation for why God did what he did. And what he's going to tell Nicodemus in a nutshell is God had salvation in view, Nicodemus, not condemnation. Now, why would that have been significant to a Jewish theological rabbi? Because they expected when Messiah would return, what was going to be his primary mode of operation? He's going to be body slamming people off the top turnbuckle, right? It's judgment time. Messiah's coming. He's going to start judging the Romans. I mean, Throats are going to be slit. You know, bodies are going to be piled up. I mean, he's going to judge. And and again, Jesus is blowing the mind of Nicodemus over and over again throughout this entire conversation. Verse 17 says this, For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Again, four further expands. God's plan in giving his son was for salvation, not condemnation. The word condemn is an interesting word. I mean, we we understand it's just used of judging, forming an opinion after separating and considering the particulars of the case. And the reason that that this was, uh, the reason for this is he didn't have to send Jesus on an exploratory mission to find out whether or not mankind was sinful and deserved judgment. He already knew that. It was obvious. It's clear. And this is why he doesn't send him. Mankind was guilty and deserving of death. They're dying in their sins. He didn't need to send Jesus to figure this out and make a judgment. He had already made a judgment on that. And so he sends his world, his son into the world to save them from the problem that they had gotten themselves into. They being the world, meaning you and I as well, we're included um, in that mess. 
And so again, might be saved, meaning to save, deliver. It's our typical word for salvation, to preserve somebody from danger, loss, or destruction. It's also used in the subjunctive mood. Interesting. He's sticking with subjunctive mood. This time it means probable and intentional because is all the world saved? No, because there's a contingency to be saved. It's to believe. Each individual person has to choose to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And so again, this salvation is not guaranteed for the world, although God's intention and desire for the world is to respond in such a way to benefit from it. Just like the bronze serpent, God wanted every Israelite who had been bitten to look at the pole. That's why he put the solution in place. And so I I hate to hear when people say that, you know, our God just wants to send people to hell. That is not true. He doesn't want anybody to go to hell. He lovingly gave up everything so that nobody would have to go to hell. The problem with mankind is we're going to see the issue in verse 18 as we get to it next week is will you trust in God's solution or will you not? Will you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ or will you reject him? There's only two responses to the message. Belief, reliance upon, or rejection of him. Don't kid yourself to say, well, I kind of like Jesus, but I still think you got to do this. That's rejection. By definition, that's rejection. And so if you're sitting here today, I, more than anything, we, we want you to be convinced that you can entrust your eternal destiny to Jesus Christ, that what he did for you 2,000 years ago was satisfying to God the Father. It, nothing more is required than what he did for you in terms of getting and spending eternity with God. Let's close there with a word of prayer. Lord, I thank you for your word. We, I hope and pray that this was kept simple, that the message was kept simple this morning. We, again, our hearts desires to lift up your son and what he accomplished. And Lord, we pray that even those who have already trusted in Jesus Christ would, would this morning would gain even just an inch or a half inch more of confidence in him and what he accomplished so that as we leave this room, we're a little bit lighter in our shoes because we know that our sin debt has been paid in full and that our acceptance with you has been completed. And we thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.